Welcome to Madison Labor Radio. Labor Radio is dedicated to bringing news, information, and cultural events focused on working people and the labor movement to the Madison area and surrounding communities. I'm Gil Halstead, a former member of the Memorial Union Labor Organization and the Wisconsin Education Association Council. Your support in any amount helps make Labor Radio and all the great programming on WORT possible. Hi, I'm Ann Habel a retired member of AFSCME Local 171. This week, we'll check in on the ongoing Kellogg strike, hear about what's being done about issues with staffing and a lack of voice for K-12 educators, learn about UW nurses' organizing efforts, find out about an oncoming actions for the PRO Act, and much more. If you like what you hear, please consider becoming a sustaining supporter of WORT and Labor Radio. The nurses' union all but disappeared at the University of Wisconsin hospitals and clinics, succumbing to Act 10. Now the nurses are on the move to bring back their union. Frank Emspach reports. Nurses at the University of Wisconsin Hospital are organizing to win back their union. Nurses are collecting signed union authorization cards from their fellow workers and will ask the hospital board to recognize SCIU Healthcare as the collective bargaining agent. SCIU maintains the hospital board can voluntarily recognize the union as, in fact, the hospital operates like a private corporation. This week, nurses and community members have been out each night showing support for the nurses by giving them cookies as they exited their 12-hour shifts at the hospital. Labor Radio was there and asked nurses why they are supporting the union. Jill Starkweather, a nurse with 30 years' experience, explained why she wanted the union. She had just finished her 12-hour shift. I'm out here because, well, I've been a nurse for 30 years, and I have definitely seen changes, especially here at UW, in the last several years in terms of really whittling away at nurse benefits, at worse nurse pay, starting nurses with less vacation time. We have very little education time and money allotted for the nurses here. Basically, we just feel like we are not being treated with the due respect and professionalism that we deserve. Pat Race, president of SEIU's Healthcare Wisconsin, told Labor Radio why she was out in support of the nurses. We've heard several things. You know, they've been asked to take pay cuts while their executive committee received an 18% bonus. They are working short staff. They are being asked to work extra, you know, minimizing their quality of, of home life balance, poor support for the emotional trauma and distress that they're going through. It just goes on. You have nurses coming, coming out of the hospital at night crying because it has been such a stressful day. Nurses are also clear about the difference in working conditions between the hospital as a union workplace and now without the union. Kimberly Rabbis, a nurse with 16 years experience, described the difference between having a union and not having a union. With a union, she explains, 
and there's more communication between administration and the staff, nurses in particular. I mean, there were there are unions for a lot of people. I I was part of when I was a nursing assistant. I was part of the union, and then I switched into the nurses union when I got my degree. But you know, uh, staffing was better. Like I said, communication. There was room we could negotiate terms of our pay, our health care, insurance, um, vacation policies, all that stuff. We don't have really have a lot of say in any policies right now because our administration doesn't even want to listen to what we have to say. Jill Starkweather seconds Kimberly's views. When we have a union, there is a, an avenue for direct conversation in terms of negotiating our pay, nevo- negotiating benefits, negotiating patient staffing, nurse-patient staffing ratios. And now, while we do have nursing councils where we can ask questions to hospital administrators, there is no real incentive for the hospital administrators to meet the demands and meet the nurses' wishes for what they think they need for safe patient care, for continuing education for the nurses, for pay and benefits. So really, we are just at the mercy of of what the administration wants to do, and there's just no sticking point for them. Staffing and excessive hours were the main issues raised by the nurses. Kimberly explains. I can speak directly for my own unit that I work on. Um, We're always short-staffed. We continually need float staff, which isn't always available because everybody needs float staff. The nurses were joined by their children, among them Emmett and Maddie, who assisted their mothers as assistant cookie makers and distributors. As of today, the number of cards signed is in excess of 50%, according to the union. Labor Radio's Greg Gabosky recorded the interviews live at the hospital. I am Frank Emsbach for Madison Labor Radio. Hortonville teachers are telling their stories about positive change through organizing in their school. Ellen LaLuzerne spoke with AFT Wisconsin President Kim Kolhaas about their efforts. Earlier this week, the Hortonville School District union members were featured on the Real News Network. The story focused on efforts to overturn the school board there. It should be noted that Hortonville was the site of a contentious and consequential strike in 1974. That strike helped in the passage of the now-defunct mediation arbitration law that was enacted in 1977. In 2011, Act 10 eviscerated that law. I spoke with Kim Kohas, president of AFT Wisconsin, about how teachers are fighting in that school district to retain their voice at work. Kohlhaas explained what was going on in the district that helped lead the staff into action. When Act 10 happened, all of our unions kind of had to figure out what do we do next. Locals have had to try to figure out how to do that. And so things at Hortonville after Act 10 were okay to start with. And then it got to be a little bit more difficult in the classroom. People were losing their prep times. They were having class change. All these things were happening that really made it very difficult for the teacher to focus on being a teacher. Finally, they decided that they just can't keep being professionals in this manner. They needed to figure out how do they get back in control of what is happening in their classroom so that they can be productive with their students. So that is where this story comes from, is that the teachers, after a couple of years of really struggling, they decided that they needed to 
be very strategic in how they made some changes, and they made those changes through electing new school board members. With the elimination of their union contract, conditions deteriorated. There wasn't an agreement about what to expect anymore. So you would come into the school day and you may have to take on an extra class because you're short subs. You may have to take on extra duties. You may not get your prep time. So all these things that you were expecting to be able to do so that you could teach in your classroom was gone. And it really became very chaotic. And if you started to push back, you no longer had the collective bargaining agreement that says you can have a conversation with your employer and not be retaliated against. So if you're pushing back as an individual, now the principal is pointing you out saying, well, you're a problem employee. We can't have you acting like that. And so it really is about standing together with your coworkers in a completely different way to say an injury to one is an injury to all of us. If you're going to do this to one worker, we're all affected by it. They decided to take action. They'd had enough. They were done asking for changes to happen. They needed to demand that changes happen. And they did that through political action and electing new school board members. And after the school board election flipped and the working conditions improved, that allowed them an opportunity to go back to focus on the things that they needed to focus on. They had a little bit more control over what their workday was like, developing their lessons, having their prep times, engaging with their students. They're still continuing to be very positive and proactive, solution-driven union members that want this to be a quality place to work and a quality place to learn. Although the union chose not to recertify under Act 10, Kohlhaas outlines what the union is doing to improve conditions at work. Well, Hortonville was a certified recognized bargaining unit prior to Act 10. They are not certified now. That was a decision by the membership. Since Act 10, they have engaged around organizing efforts. They're working on mentoring their new employees, on communicating uh, workers' rights and professional development supports for their new employees. They're doing community outreach to support their students. And organizing is hard. It takes time but it's also where you get to be creative and you get to depend on and build relationships with your coworkers in a manner that you'd never did before. That was Kim Kohlhaas, president of AFT Wisconsin. I'm Ellen LaLazern for Labor Radio. have just approached Christine. But what FOSIS is doing right now in the streets is nothing in comparison to what undocumented immigrants face. That is why we're here. We are calling for citizenship. Families need to stay united. We need permanent protections. You just heard the voice of Jessica Schmidt, digital organizer for the Milwaukee-based immigrants' rights organization Fosas de la Frontera. As the group's executive director, Christine Newman-Ortiz, was arrested in an act of civil disobedience in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday. Al Hutton is a Fosas member who now lives in Madison, but spent 41 years as a teacher and counselor in the Racine Public Schools and is a retired member of the Racine Education Association, the REA. He was among the 37 people arrested as well. Hutton describes why Fosas was in the nation capital on Tuesday. 
we were joining a nationwide gathering of groups, we marched from Union Station to the Capitol to put pressure on the Senate, and we're urging them to include a path to citizenship in that legislation. Hutton describes how he and others chose an act of civil disobedience to bring attention to the cause. We chose to block a street adjacent to the Capitol. We walked into the street with banners, created a semicircle, and then sat down. The policeman, of course, got on the bullhorn and said, you're doing something illegal here, and you will be arrested if you don't get up and move now. And, of course, we didn't move, and they arrested each one of us. There were uh, 37 people arrested. According to Hutton, the Capitol Police were nice enough to those arrested at first, ticketing them after their arrests and not even bringing them to jail. But it was a different story when they went to pay their tickets, where only a few of those arrested could get processed, forcing the others to return to D.C. to avoid a future arrest warrant. Hutton, who was one of those who was kept outside, doesn't think this was just normal bureaucracy. I'm assuming they're doing that to try to lower the number of people willing to get arrested at protests. The action did get the ear of Wisconsin Senator Tammy Baldwin, who met with Vosos representatives the next day and promised to work for a path to citizenship in the current legislation. The current bill sent from the House of Representatives does not include a path to citizenship, but does include certain reforms and extensions, which have also yet to be assured in the Senate legislation. Hutton describes those provisions, which although falling far short of what Vosis is pushing for, would provide some benefits to some immigrant families, Hutton explains. It was passed in the House bill, H.R. 5376. What it would do is give certain people the right to work, the right to be free of threat of deportation. A driver's license would be included, which would be very helpful since Wisconsin does not allow undocumented people to have a license. It would provide that protection for five years, and then you could reapply, and it would go for five more years. Hutton gave a personal example. When I was a counselor at Horlick, I had a whole family of four kids. They were all American citizens. Their parents were undocumented. They had lived here that whole time. You know, so there are some very long-term undocumented folks that would be protected by this. Hutton described the continuity between fighting for the rights of immigrants and the decades of struggles as an REA member in the Racine schools. It's very much the same in that it's organizing toward to meet the needs of people. I was, of course, in the union when Act 10 came down. Prior to that, went through several strikes, and it was a matter of organizing to meet the best interests of the Racine kids and schools and teachers. That was Al Hutton of Vosas de la Frontera and retired member of the Racine Education Association. Vosas is continuing actions in Wisconsin this Monday, December 13th, with simultaneous rallies at 3.30 in Milwaukee, Green Bay, Racine, Appleton, Waukesha, and right here in Madison. Al Hutton will miss the Madison rally because he has to fly to D.C. to pay his fine, but those here who wish to attend can meet at 3.30 Monday by the Wisconsin Democratic Party offices at 15 North Pinckney Street in Capitol Square. For more information, call 470-454-4508 or visit the Voces de la Frontera website at vdlf.org. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabosky. There are even more actions planned in Wisconsin that push Washington to pass legislation for working people. The PRO Act, Organized Labor's number one legislative goal, will get a boost on Monday. Here's Greg Jabosky. The Protect the Right to Organize Act, the PRO Act, is Organized Labor's leading national legislative target this year. While it looks like increased fines and penalties directed at employers may be included in the Build Back Better budget reconciliation package, requiring only a 50% vote, 
Important sections of the PRO Act that would expand the right to organize at the workplace will be left to regular legislation, which right now requires 60 votes in the U.S. Senate to get past a filibuster. This isn't deterring the political organization Our Revolution, which has state and local organizations across the country and is going all out for the PRO Act. And this Monday, December 13th, there will be a noon rally in Milwaukee. Labor Radio spoke to Andre Walton, executive director of Our Wisconsin Revolution, OWR, who describes Monday's action. Monday, December 13th, from 12 to 1 p.m., we are going to be in Milwaukee to fight for the PRO Act with unions. And the reason why we are doing this is because for the last 50 years, we have seen a destruction of unions in the United States. And as we've seen a destruction of unions, we've also seen a continued widening of the income and wealth inequality in the system. And we know that it's directly tied to unionization. So for us, this is about supporting the working classes, supporting unions, and effectively dealing with the wealth and income inequality in this country. OWR is targeting the office of Republican U.S. Senator from Wisconsin, Ron Johnson. We're going to be right in front of Ron Johnson's office. Right now, we currently still have the filibuster in place. And in order to get the PRO Act passed, it has to get 60 votes. And obviously here in Wisconsin, we believe that we've seen the worst of the union destruction with the right to work law that has been passed in Wisconsin with the destruction of public unions. Obviously, this is a little bit more targeted towards private sector. But in my opinion, when you unionize one, it helps unionize public as well. Walton describes how he sees organizing for the PRO Act as tied to other worker campaigns that are going on. This is all working class solidarity. We've worked really hard on supporting immigrant rights because rights for labor, whether you're a citizen or not, is rights for all. And we believe that uh, the PRO Act will alleviate some of those situations. That was Andre Walton, executive director of Our Wisconsin Revolution. The rally for the PRO Act is in Milwaukee this Monday, December 13th, from noon to one at Senator Ron Johnson's Milwaukee office at 517 East Wisconsin Avenue. More information is on the Facebook page of Our Wisconsin Revolution. For Labor Radio, I'm Greg Jabal. After receiving a new tentative agreement from their company last week, unionized workers at the serial production company Kellogg's have voted to continue striking. Labor Radio's Sean Hagerup discusses their dissatisfaction with the terms of the contract. 1,400 workers at Kellogg's plants across the country have voted overwhelmingly to reject a tentative five-year contract negotiated between the company and their union the bakery, confectionery, tobacco workers, and grain millers. These workers are spread across four states, including Michigan, Nebraska, Pennsylvania, and Tennessee. Workers received the wording of the agreement late last week and held votes on ratification this Sunday, with official results released late Monday into Tuesday. The strike originally began on October 5th, after the previous contract between the union and company had expired and a new agreement had not been reached. Kellogg's employees were particularly concerned about the concessions the company was asking for in their proposals, including an elimination of quarterly cost of living adjustments and a reaffirmation of tiered systems of payment for employees based on their tenure. Labor Radio's Greg Jaboski spoke with Dan Osborne, president of BCTGM Local 50G in Omaha last Thursday. Osborne had this to say to Jaboski about the two-tier system that workers are fighting at Kellogg's. The 30% their initial proposal, which is one of the main major reasons we went on strike, is they wanted to eliminate that cap. So effectively what that would do is through attrition, uh, everybody would be on the lower tier at some point. There would be no two-tier, it would just be the lower tier. So so that was that was, you know, that's pretty obvious to, to anybody who understands it. That's 
definitely worth going on strike over, right? In the course of negotiations since October 5th, union members and representatives have been particularly focused on the two-tier system proposed in each of the tentative contracts. While Kellogg's has conceded to workers on several points, none of the proposals thus far have satisfactorily addressed the changes to the tier system. Osborne, who said that the workers are looking for a race floor on the number of people that are moved to a higher tier, also expressed to Jaboski how the structure of the tier system could discourage workers in the long term. Yeah, uh, well, before this two-tier system, if you got hired on, you pretty much retired from there because that's the kind of job it was. You know, you would, you knew, I know when I got hired on in 04, well, uh, there was six job openings and there was 600 people that applied. So it's a, it was a very desirable, sought-after job, you know, in these communities. So, but now, you know, under this two-tier system, you get you get people that are hired 40% of that lower tier. There's a there's a 40% turnover rate. You know, they don't stay. So the the job has definitely changed in the last six years. After the results of the election became official on Tuesday. Kellogg management indicated their intention on Wednesday to permanently replace all 1,400 striking workers. Special thanks to Greg Jaboski and Dan Osborne for their contributions to this story. Reporting for Labor Radio, I'm Sean Hagerup. Districts are struggling to find substitute staff to fill when regular staff need time off. Peggy Wirtz Olson, president of the Wisconsin Education Association Council, provided an overview of the issue with Alan LaLuzerne. Included in the long list of areas facing hiring issues, school districts are facing that issue as well. In addition, finding substitute teachers has been even more difficult than finding other school workers such as teachers. Peggy Wirtz Olson, president of the Wisconsin Education Association Council, or WEAC, spoke with me today about issues with the lack of substitute teachers in school districts around the state. Peggy, can you outline the scope of this issue? The teaching shortage, specifically the substitute teaching shortage, is at a crisis level in schools all across Wisconsin. We recognize that many districts are reporting that they can cover teacher absences about 60% of the time, leaving current staff to fill in for the four out of every 10 absences. Having a lack of adequate subs, is that exacerbating the problem with even a lack of full-time regular teaching staff? It is exacerbating the problem. The teachers are increasingly asked to cover classes during their prep time. And then alternatively, schools are combining classes, increasing the number of student-to-teacher ratio. And all of that leads to more and more of a shortage. Educator workload is at a crisis level. And even more than they traditionally have, our teachers are working on their lesson plans, grading outside of the school day. We have places where they're responsible for sanitizing our schools, reinforcing COVID safety protocols, covering classes when someone else is out. This kind of puts all of it at a critical precipice. Many of the things you mentioned were part of collective bargaining before. Are there any steps being taken to change that situation? It was an honor of mine to stand with Senator Chris Larson and Representative Katrina Shanklin back in September, where they introduced collective bargaining for educators bill. As we watched that move through, our Democratic friends all signed on. In lieu of legislation, we really rely on that strong relationship between the local union and the school district administration and the school boards in order to come together on behalf of our students. 
we all succeed when our students do well. And so it's incumbent on all of us to work together to find those solutions. Are there specific issues that come up that make it more difficult to find subs? I think the uncertainty and the the variety can sometimes create the additional challenges. We know our students are facing some of the biggest mental health struggles that we've seen um, in my time as an educator. And when a substitute doesn't have those relationships with a student in the school building the, with, with um, behavior issues or mental health things that, that pop up, that can be a unique challenge. What are some of the things that people are doing to recruit subs? The average substitute teacher makes $120 a day. We have some places that are paying up to $200 a day and really instituting regular substitute who routinely works in the same building. So they have that opportunity to build relationships with students. They can count on the steady work within one building or within one district. On our end, in order to get more substitutes, the WEA Academy runs a Foundations of Effective Substitute Teaching course where we train hundreds of subs. So really our, our union is utilizing a number of ways trying to help with the problem. Do you think there's anything that can be done in the long run to help to help resolve this issue? Well, relying on more substitutes isn't the long-term solution to the churn of people that are entering and leaving classrooms. So our work to bring educator voice into school decisions is key to a long-term solution in shortages. With the ability to negotiate with our employers and increase funding to meet the increased student needs, Wisconsin schools will be in a great spot to move ahead coming out of the pandemic. But that voice for educators at the table needs to be a real voice with their ability to negotiate. That was Peggy Wirtz Olson, president of WEAC. This is Ellen LaLazerne for Labor Radio. Thanks for listening to Madison Labor Radio. I'm Gil Halstead, and thanks to editors Frank Emspeck, Ellen LaLuzerne, Assistant Robin G., reporters Greg Javoski, Sean Hagerup, Anna Ham, Scott McCullough, Janine Ramsey, Tony Reeves, Carol Widell, and Damage Control Specialist Joanne Powers. Special thanks to Keith Steffen, our reader coordinator, and to all our readers and the members of IBEW Local 2304 WORT Staff Collective. And I'm Ann Habel. We'd also like to thank all of our generous contributors to Labor Radio and WORT. Please stay tuned for Dave Watts with the Blues Cruise.